Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, is often criticized by capitalists, pro-capitalists, for his growth of government and his economic interventions. Less frequently discussed are his assaults on civil liberties. But today, we have a guy who's going to talk about just those assaults. He's an American historian and a professor of history at the University of Alabama, and he's also the author of the forthcoming book, The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, The Untold Story of FDR's Concentration Camps, Censorship, and Mass Surveillance. David Beto, welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, I'm also a research fellow for the Independent Institute. So I want to make sure that's in there. Okay. A research fellow for the Independent Institute. So let's just jump right in. For starters, what can you tell us about Senator Hugo Black and his committee? Well, Senator Black was a senator from uh, Alabama, and he was a big ally of FDR. He was kind of an attack dog for FDR, very reliable figure. And FDR basically delegated him, asked him to head a committee to investigate people that were opposing the New Deal. The New Deal was starting to get a lot of opposition around 1935. And so Black took charge of this committee. And the official agenda of the committee was to investigate lobbying. Now, how did they define lobbying? They defined lobbying as just about anything. So we're having a conversation like this affecting the world of ideas, that could be considered lobbying. It was just indirect, direct, et cetera. So he starts calling people in to uh, that are critics of the New Deal and grilling them before his committee. And that was, it wasn't as effective as he had hoped. So he goes to the FCC and with the help of the Roosevelt administration gets permission to look at the private telegrams of people he's about to bring in. Because the way they used to do it was the telegraph companies had to keep copies of all their telegrams, like Western Union. Now, this is important form of communication. 50% of long distance communication was by telegrams. It was the email of its time. It was instantaneous or almost instantaneous, and it served a very similar function. And of course, people didn't like now, they didn't necessarily keep track of their telegrams. They would say things in their telegrams. They wouldn't say in letters. Uh, you know, um, and here he had all the copies of these things. And he would call them in. He said, on June 8th, you said this. Now, one more thing about the telegrams. We know that Black literally looked at millions of telegrams. He would subpoena, they called it a subpoena, but it really wasn't. He would send out subpoenas and said, I want all the telegrams sent from and to members of Congress. For example, he did this for like a nine month period. And he went through thousands a day and eventually went through some three million of them. And then he would gather these up and he'd bring these people in and he'd blindside them. It's like we would be blindsided by our emails. No idea that someone was going to start reading them to us and saying, on June 8th, you said this and so forth. So that was one of the methods he used. Um, this is initially not well known that he's doing this, but when it becomes known, partly because the telegraph companies start informing people, because they protested this, they didn't want to do this. 
that their telegrams are being searched by the Black Committee, there was massive opposition to this. And if you look at newspapers around the country, I'm talking about the Washington Post, the New York Times, they are saying, what's going on here? And they're comparing him to the Soviet secret police and that kind of thing. So it's very inquisitorial. It's called an inquisitorial investigation by critics. And this is going on with the full knowledge of President Roosevelt, correct? It's basically on his behalf. Yeah, exactly. It is. And he 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 delegate he he basically got Black to head the committee. He approved Black's use of the FCC in this way to get private telegrams to literally go to the telegraph companies and say, "Okay, we want you know millions of telegrams of you know it added up to that, and we want to go through them." And that's exactly what they did. And then Roosevelt was privately confronted with this committee and its violation of rights by a, a new dealer named um, uh, Raymond Moley, very important new dealer who was very bothered by this. And Roosevelt said, well, this really is fine. You know, uh, we, we've got problems here and we shouldn't worry so much about all of these little details, um, because if you're not guilty, you don't have anything to worry about, you know, that kind of argument. So he was fully behind this, but Roosevelt's a lot different than Trump. If Trump was behind it, you'd know it and he'd brag about it. He'd be tweeting about it. Roosevelt is very much the master of using intermediaries, of not having a direct connection. And only among people he really trusts does he let his hair down and start talking very explicitly about what he's doing. So He's a master of that kind of, I don't know what you'd call deniability, I guess is the term. So you have this Senator Hugo Black, and he's basically engaging in what would later be called McCarthyism, right? He's on a witch hunt, basically, but he's doing it on behalf of the president of the United States. Hugo Black also is formerly a member of the Ku Klux Klan, and yet he ends up on the Supreme Court uh, appointed by who? Who appointed Hugo Black to the Supreme Court? President Roosevelt. And the <laughs> the prime explanation I've seen, I find very compelling, is Black had loyally served the president as head of the Black Committee. And this, this was his reward to be elevated to the Supreme Court. Now, it was rumored that Black was a member, had been a member of the Klan, and he was a life member. So, I mean, that he just... He, he was always going to be a member of the Klan, whether he wanted to or not. And it had helped build his career. This was widely rumored, widely discussed. In fact, the Chicago Tribune devoted an editorial cartoon to the Black community where it shows Hugo Black dressed like a night rider, you know, seizing private telegrams. It's really quite a... And they're, they're bringing this up. However, it still was sort of the stuff of rumors, but it was well known. And FDR knew it when he pointed to the court and wasn't particularly bothered by it. And then it became public knowledge, official public knowledge. And there were calls to get Black to resign from the court. And uh, he had to come up and do a, even a little uh, speech where he said he tried to justify it. And basically what he said was, well, to get anywhere, you know, in Alabama, you had to be a member of the Klan, and it was just routine, and I didn't really agree with them. You know, I mean, it was enough to get by, 
but it was sort of well known before that. Um, but yeah, and there was a big controversy about it once it became kind of acknowledged public information, calls for him to resign and he didn't. And FTR stood by him and once made a speech or told a supporter, he said, some of my strongest supporters are Klan members. Why are people so upset about this? You know, he had to do it, right? To get ahead in Alabama. Now, Senator Black wasn't the only senator who formed the committee to sort of defend the New Deal or go after the New Deal's enemies. There was also a Senator Sherman Minton. What can you tell us about him? Well, once Black went on the court, the, his committee kind of went dormant because there'd been a big, frankly, big public reaction against it. And he'd lost in, in some court rulings and that kind of thing. Um, and it was revived under his protege, who was a senator from Indiana, who's much less well known, uh, Senator Sherman Minton. And uh, Minton uh, didn't have the same power that Black did because the courts had slammed down this use of private telegrams. Imagine if McCarthy had had that power or the power to uh, look at uh, telephone calls, bug telephones. He didn't have that power. He would have been a much more dangerous figure. But partly because of the precedent set by the reaction against the Black Committee, Mitten and McCarthy didn't have this power. So Mitten is 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 getting frustrated because he's doing the same thing. He's calling in these critics, in this case, critics of court packing um, and other measures. Same thing. But they're getting a lot of public sympathy. So Mitten decide in frustration, he proposes a bill. And it is a bill to make it a felony to publish any article known to be false. And it's prison sentence, right? And I think, although I don't have a smoking gun, but I have I have some pretty good circumstantial evidence that Roosevelt was behind it. Roosevelt had suggested to Minton to do this. Minton was just the not not a not a loose cannon type. You know, he was a loyal foot soldier of the administration. It wasn't something he would likely do. In any case, Roosevelt was asked about it as the public reaction was setting in, which was almost universally hostile from both the left and the right, saying this is this is outrageous. This is censorship. In fact, I think people are better in that sense then than they are now, and that left and right would often come together on civil liberties issues. And Roosevelt was asked about this just as it was clear that this was not going to go anywhere, that this is a bad move. And he basically just, all he did, he didn't take position. He just made a joke. He said, well, if we were to enact that bill, we'd have to increase the budget of the Bureau of Prisons because there would be so many people in the federal prison system, we couldn't afford it anymore, you know, because we had so many liars, basically. And that's his little joke. And then he said, well, you boys brought it on yourselves, you know, talking to the media. And then he went on to something else. And yeah, that was the extent of it. But I think he put him up to it. So that was one of the things Mitten did is he proposed this bill. And on the bright side, it was shouted down. There were pe there was very few there were very few people willing to go on record to support it, left or right. Uh, so it was a bad move. And it really hurt him and it probably cost him re-election. Although he ended up on the Supreme Court too later. 
<laughs> Both Mitten and Black ended up on the court as colleagues. Mitten was appointed by FDR's future vice president, yeah. Harry S. Truman. Harry correct? Truman. Although FDR threw him a lifeline after he was defeated and appointed him to a federal court position. Apparently, FDR had he, Mitten it had been his first choice before Black for Black's appointment, but Mitten wanted to stay in the Senate. So FDR threw him a lifeline, um, and then Truman elevated him up to the Supreme Court after FDR's death. Okay, now there was, I have to go back in time a little bit prior to Roosevelt's presidency, to the Radio Act of 1927 and the FRC. What were they? Well, this is my little violation because the book's focused on FDR. But I said, I have to really provide the context because radio was so important to the New Deal, uh, control of radio and use of radio. So we got to look back and, and look, how did this system develop? So I went back to the origins of federal regulation. And I got a couple chapters, one chapter that deals with that. And I hope it works. It was a lot of fun to write, but I'm trying to describe the context. Now, one of the arguments I make is that in the 19, early 1920s, radio arguably was freer in terms of free speech than newspapers, because newspapers still had things like prior restraint laws and other kinds of censorship in, in the early 20s. Radio, there's very little censorship. The way it worked was, basically, if you wanted to start a radio station, um, you could. And the federal government's role was basically to police interference, police against interference. So, in effect, you had a de facto kind of homesteading system, where first come, you know, I'm using this frequency, I'd be the first person to use it. And you'd say, okay, that's yours. And we will police against interference. Very little in the way of censorship. Well, through some complicated maneuvering, this system worked quite well. But the Secretary of Commerce in the 1920s, Herbert Hoover, did not like it. He believed radio was kind of a public good, that the airways belong to the public and they shouldn't be used to sort of hawk commercial products and they should be controlled. So that's what Hoover pushed. And he was able to get through some very creative methods like engineering chaos, in effect, ending all the regulation of frequencies and leading to kind of a chaos. The courts were trying to work that out, but Hoover jumped at the opportunity to create the Federal Radio Commission, which is essentially the same thing as the Federal Communications Commission. They just you know, changed it over time to expand it, its reach. And basically what that did is that nationalized the airwaves. And the Federal Radio Commission said, look, we will decide who will use particular frequencies. And they went through them. And hundreds of stations were forced off the air. Um, sometimes to prevent interference, but very often because they were the wrong kinds of stations, right? Uh, they were uh, not seen as responsible. They were seen as radical or various things or marginal. So 
the creation of the modern networks, which are very generic and very much the same and very much avoiding controversy, really dates from that period. And it was engineered uh, by the Federal Radio Commission regulation, which was extensive. This is under Coolidge and Hoover. They're probably the most one of the most extensive government interventions in American history. Um, you kind of spoiled my next question. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, it's funny because that aside from the main thesis of the book, I found that interesting. The other day I posed a question on Facebook. Has there ever been a president that did not violate the Constitution? And somebody cited Calvin Coolidge. Now, I don't know enough about the Coolidge administration other than, you know, trying to sort of whip up markets by talking them up prior to the Great Depression, but that's not really a violation of the Bill of Rights. That's just rhetoric. But I wasn't aware of any explicit violations. And then I read this section of your book and I, well, there you go. <laughs> he he enacts this law. He signs into law this yeah. radio act, which is clear censorship to me. And also Hoover, who is falsely, obviously, but commonly assumed to be this free marketer who doesn't interfere, you know, no government regulation. It, but it's clear as day that neither one of them were actually not consistent anyways, free marketers. Yeah, I agree. And I like Coolidge and he's one of my favorite presidents, but that is definitely a negative. Uh, I also rather like Harding too. Um, um, you know, Harding wasn't involved in this, but I mean, it, it, it did I say Harding? You you know you said Coolidge and Hoover. Said Coolidge. Right? I said I like Hart. I rather okay. Like I thought Harding I said Harding. I just, okay. I just who was president during this period? So I I like him, but I mean it was a uh, I think he was listening to Hoover, and Hoover was very smart about what he did. Hoover basically you had this informal system to protect property rights, basically by the federal government policing against interference. And Hoover, at one point, he uses this court ruling to say, well, I'm not allowed to interfere anymore. I'm not allowed to do anything. And creates a kind of chaotic situation where frequencies start to clash and so forth. Um, and 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 creates kind of a, a, a creates, a, sets a fire in effect that, that didn't have to be set and creates a kind of a movement for uh, radio regulation. It's a it's not that complicated a story, but it's an interesting story about how Hoover as a political entrepreneur really wants a government control over radio and uses some very Machiavellian methods to bring it about. And now back to your thesis, how did, or in what ways did FDR exploit the Radio Act of 1927 and the FRC to further his agenda, the New Deal? Well, you know, sometimes this is very indirect because uh, there was a big expert on um, radio who, who uh, you know, written the people, they had shortened the period. This had actually occurred under Hoover, but FDR continued it there was like, I think it was a year, every, uh, you had to go back, stations had to go back every year to get their uh, license renewed. Well, Hoover shortened that to six months and FDR continued that. And somebody said, every radio station owner in the country 
quakes in fear when they think of the FCC because they have to go back and get that renewal. And that took sometimes took lawyers because there were disputes. So if you were a small marginal station, you know, you didn't have a lot of money, you wouldn't want to take risks. So a lot of these stations are just scared into it. You didn't really have to do anything by that fear of getting the license renewed. So there are a lot of statements, uh, stories in there where uh, you had stations that, oh, failed to carry certain of FDR's speeches for free, basically. And um, they were told, you know, we want you to carry these speeches. And it was quite clear that they needed to do it, right? Um, there was also a lot of other kinds of methods used, like pressure of sponsors. Very interesting case. There was a radio commentator. His name was Bo Carter. He was like, I guess, the Tucker, Tucker Carlson of his time. The guy had, he was bigger than that. He was a nationally known radio commentator who had been an ally of Roosevelt and turned against him. And Roosevelt decided he wanted to get this guy off the air. And he told people privately, say, we're looking for a way. We're looking at his citizenship status. We're trying to get this guy off the air. And one guy who was there was a New Dealer who admired FDR up to that point. And he said, my God, um, I couldn't believe he was saying this. I thought he believed in freedom. You know, he was very upset by that. Well, anyway, the way they get him off the air is they go to his uh, the ambassador to Russia, his wife uh, is uh, one of the sponsors, or she's on the uh, the company that's uh, one of the sponsors of Bo Carter's show. And they go to him and they say, uh, you, you're going to go off the air unless you tone it down and stop talking about politics. And Carter eventually gives into this pressure and it shows so boring that it's, you know, it's dropped from the air very quickly. And there were other people as well. So by 1938, there are no anti-deal commentators anymore on the three major networks. Well, it's two major ones. They become three quite quickly. But there are no commentators who are critical of the New Deal on the three major networks. Through uh, basically the network. Networks being scared to death of bucking the administration and this use of behind the scenes pressure, you know, to exert pressure on them. It's very much like the whole controversy these days with the Twitter files and all of that writ large. Right. It's the same kind of thing. This indirect pressure. Combined with the fact that you've got a federal regulatory structure here waiting in reserve. Um so you've sort of scared the networks into cooperating and, and going to the administration and say, is this all right? You want us to fire this guy? You know, they're in this situation. Because I think FDR sort of held a possibility of nationalization in reserve. That, you know, um, he would have been happy to do it, I think. But it's sort of like, do we want, you know, he's going to maintain private ownership. But always a fear is that he might come in there and try to nationalize the airwaves. So, so the networks are very cooperative. So during the FDR administration in service of the New Deal, we have surveillance. We have going after political enemies. We have censorship. 
This is the type of stuff that is associated with Senator Joseph McCarthy, President Richard Nixon. Why isn't it associated with Roosevelt? Well, he's he's got the deniability, right? Uh, McCarthy and Trump, they're very similar figures in a lot of ways. He's the kind of guy to just barrel in, right? Uh, McCarthy also, in, interesting difference with Black, the president Eisenhower didn't like him, never liked him, and ultimately did him in. Difference here is that Black was an ally of Roosevelt. Roosevelt liked him and rewarded him and promoted him, but was very careful to maintain deniability. So I think a lot of that has to do with that. I think some of it has to do with FDR is the guy that we associate with the Bill of Rights very often through the four freedoms. Well, at least, you know, two of the things are in the Bill of Rights, where he talks about freedom of speech and all of this stuff and makes a big deal about it. A lot of people in the administration were actually members of the American Civil Liberties Union. So Roosevelt is able to kind of use that kind of pro-civil liberties rhetoric, but there are all of these examples where he's not doing it, but he's not really called on it. So it's an interesting question. I think Roosevelt has a certain charm. You know, if you want to find speeches where he's attacking freedom of speech, you're, you're going to be hard to find them um, because this isn't anything he's going to be very explicit about. You're going to find stuff from Richard Nixon. You're going to find stuff from Joe McCarthy, certainly from Donald Trump, that sounds very uh, intolerant by comparison. <laughs> not a fan of the Donald, are you? <laughs> not, uh, not particularly, no. <laughs> Me neither. How he's okay. managed to convince so many people that he's a constitutionalist. Like I've had arguments with people. He's pro-capitalist. He's the protector of the Constitution. It, clearly he isn't. I, it just It's one of the most dumbfounding experiences of my life. I'm only 47, but still, it, it's just absolutely bewildering to me. Well, and again, we just saw recently that he said about the uh, networks, he said, they, you know, that's the public airwaves. We should investigate them. He's actually using that argument. And this was just in the last couple of weeks. He said, and of course, he proposed a bill. He proposed an idea like mittens. This is how, remember when he first started, he said, well, you know, we should have libel law. You know, it should cover. I mean, it was exactly the same idea. So, um, yeah, I don't understand it either. Uh, but but it's, it's very disconcerting. <laughs> to say the least. And I hate to defend the guy when I have to. Because I see, you know, I think some of the prosecution of him is over the top and so forth. So it's a very uncomfortable position to be in. <laughs> I just wish he had not come on the scene. He's made yeah. everything so messy. <laughs> Ditto. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, as bad as the uh, activities of Roosevelt and those working on his behalf were, Nothing, in my view, that he did is as bad as the internment of those of Japanese ancestry. Why and when did he come up with this idea to basically put them in concentration camps? And you said basically put them in concentration camps. I guess you, I'm glad you said that because there's been a big debate about what do we call them? Well, let's call them what FDR called them. He called them concentration camps. 
He did that as late as 1944 in a in a news conference and called them concentration camps. Now, is, are they the same thing as the death camps of Hitler? No, they are not. They're not even close. But the label is a fair label because, yes, we did intern uh, Italians and Germans, but these were non-citizens. The Japanese who were in turn included citizens who were solely put into camps because of ancestry. Big difference. And we did it on a mass scale. So it's, it's, it's a lot different. Um, okay, you're asking about Roosevelt. Well, Roosevelt had supported that idea as early, I think, as 1936 with reference to Hawaii. He said, anybody, any Japanese American who meets Japanese ships, you know, who came to Hawaii, you know, and call and all that, whatever, who talks with them or, or has any connection with any crew member on these ships, any connection, communication, should in time of war be immediately put into concentration camps. So he had supported that idea in one sense. He was also a big fan of his cousin uh, Theodore's anti-Japanese policies. And then added to that in the 1920s, Roosevelt wrote op-eds for, for a Georgia paper in Warm Springs, where he said, California, that's great that you denied the Japanese uh, 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 ownership rights of land. Uh, we should bar Japanese immigration. We should not allow intermarriage. He's making all of these statements. So he's not, he's a guy that's not very tolerant when it comes to Japanese. Well, you get Pearl Harbor, right? And does he put the Jap is there is there an effort to put the Japanese into concentration camps after Pearl Harbor? Not really. There's no real big demand for it. So you go through December, you go through January, and the Japanese are not in concentration camps. What Roosevelt does during that crucial period is he goes silent. There are people that go to him and say, look, there is some rising anti-Japanese feeling still contained. Can't you speak out about it? Can't you do something about it? Um, and Roosevelt doesn't. And then you start to get people in the administration, outside the administration, in the military, um, calling for concentration camps. And FDR just sort of stands back. And then in February, he says, yeah, okay, let's do it. Let's put him in. Um, so he never had come out against it. He, he sort of let these anti-Japanese feelings get out of control. He didn't do anything to stop it. And he basically, um, uh, when people in the military started to design plans for putting them in camps, he let them. And then when they had these plans put it, you know, already formulated, he said, okay, he approved it. That was his role. And it, it, he was never against it. I think his default position was for it. And he, when a kind of efforts developed to do that, he, he didn't discourage them. He encouraged them really. And he signed on to the project, but a very smart method here. And if you look at his executive order, and I would encourage people to Google his executive order, it, is, it even has deniability. 
his executive order in uh, ordering the um, um, basically starting Japanese internment doesn't mention Japanese Americans in it. It doesn't mention the Japanese. It says uh, persons uh, whose removal is necessary. That's the kind of words it uses, euphemisms. And then the people that did the enforcement, the military, they, they are very explicit in saying all people of Japanese ancestry in the specific orders not signed by FDR. And that included children in orphanages, by the way. So if you had a child in an orphanage who was Japanese, American, uh, they had to be put into the camps as well. They were very clear about that, the military. The language Roosevelt employed, to me, is reminiscent of the Constitution's reference to slaves, mm -hmm. the importation of such people as they deemed necessary, or I don't remember the exact language, but it doesn't say Africans or slaves. It says the importation of such people. So that's the, the I guess that's just the kind of thing that politicians do. And it seems like Roosevelt was an expert at using language in a way and getting things done in a way where he had plausible deniability. Yeah. And I think that's a very good comparison. And if you look at the constitution, it's tortured language. You look at the, uh, even the provision allowing um, an end to the slave trade. You look at the future of slave clause. They are, it's convoluted language when simpler language, just using the term slaves would have said it all. And if you look at the states, they've got their slave codes. They're very explicit in those. But the Constitution never mentions the word slave in, in, in the, you know, the early Constitution or slavery. It uses euphemisms. So I have been trying to figure out the story behind the wording of Japanese, of Roosevelt's executive orders. And it's just not clear to me why he does this, but I think, well, I think it is clear to me why he's doing it. It's tortured, convoluted language that avoids using the term Japanese, all other persons, that kind of thing. And, he, and um, it, it creates deniability. And in fact, I think when the Supreme Court ends up uh, ruling on the issue, even the people that are against the internment don't blame FDR. They blame the military because the military is very explicit about all people of Japanese ancestry shall report to camps, that kind of thing. Um, and it's it's very, very devious, <laughs> I would say. And I don't know if there was any sort of constitutional you know, reason to do it. I mean, you're proposing a bill to and put the Japanese Americans in camps, the military's using that kind of language. Why can't you use it in the bill? Convoluted language instead. I can, the only thing I can come up with is it, it's deniability again. Now you mentioned it earlier, but it bears repeating that Italian and German American citizens or American citizens of German and Italian ancestry were not put in camps. No, they were not. I mean, if you're, if you're, well, certainly if you're born in the United States, right? Birthright citizens. Now, you might have had examples of somebody that's a citizen is under suspicion. You know, they may be in a little flexible on that. But we're, what we're talking about, the big issue here is what we're talking about with Japanese Americans. You're talking about 
you're put in camps simply because you're a birthright citizen, as well as if you're not, right? You're all thrown together. That is not happening with German Americans or Italian Americans. You already mentioned the similarities with the Twitter files, and you've mentioned former President Trump and some of his behavior. What other lessons can we take from the Roosevelt administration and his allies, their behavior? What lessons can we take from them and apply to today? How are they relevant? Well, that's, I, I like that question because I think there's a positive lesson we can take from this that I really like to emphasize. And that is Roosevelt had a lot of opposition, including from people in his own administration. And that removes, by, by the way, that undermines a lot of the attempts to defend him. His own attorney general was against Japanese internment. J. Edgar Hoover was against him. So there were people who spoke out, who fought back, and there were also coalitions. There were people like the socialist Norman Thomas and the Republican Alfred Landon who got together to promote uh, free speech for everybody. And I always sort of make an argument. In fact, I'm going to write an article about this, I think. Maybe somebody else has done it. But there's a free rider problem with free speech because you'll often get people, and you've probably heard them, and, and you'll say, well, you got to defend this guy's free speech, some reprehensible character, right? And they'll say, well, I don't really want to do that. Yeah, he's got free speech. I don't really want to waste my time doing that. What you had in the 1930s is you would have leftists who would say, okay, these are right-wingers accused of sedition, but their free speech is being violated, and they'd speak out. And you had conservatives, people on the right, who would defend the free speech of leftists. They would come together much more than now, where there's a kind of free rider problem. Because, you know, if a rightist, if their free speech is being attacked, only rightists defend them. And that weakens the defense because fewer people are coming forward. Same thing on the left. I could point to current examples. People will just zero... We, what we need is a true American Civil Liberties Union. And as far as I can see, they've abrogated that. Now, they weren't great during the 1940s either. They were pretty bad on Japanese internment, but they were at least conflicted. There were at least elements that were against it. Um, and now it's just very worrisome is that I think we need more coalitions across the political spectrum for civil liberties. And the fact that we don't have these is very worrisome because it weakens the defense. In any case, if you've only got one segment opinion willing to defend uh, free speech. So I think that's a positive lesson. And I think in, in some sense that people at the time were better than we are on that issue in fighting back. Now, FDR has got a bad administration. A lot of people say, well, on civil liberties, he's better than Wilson. I don't think he was. And I think the circumstances were different. Uh, there was a bigger anti-war movement, for example, during World War I. I think Roosevelt is bad by objective standards. However, there are people pushing back against Roosevelt that were not pushing back against Wilson. And he wanted to do a lot more on Japanese internment. He wanted to put the Japanese Americans in Hawaii in camps. He wanted to pick an island. I forget which one it was. One of the smaller ones and ship them all there. One third of the population of Hawaii. 
put them in camps. And the guy that was the general there dragged his feet. He didn't like the idea. And it was just too, ended up being too expensive because you'd have to divert ships from the front lines in the South Pacific to transport people. But FDR wanted to do it. He pushed it. But there was resistance and it was not done. It sounds to me like when, when you talk about the opposition that back then there was a willingness for people to criticize members of their own party far more than what I, I see today. I mean, there's some, you may, you may get it, but for the most part, we're just in a tribal situation where each side, they're just, I mean, they've taken sides and that's all they can see. I mean, to the degree that I'll say something and, and I'll get criticism one side says yeah go watch some more cnn you marxist and and someone else will say oh you've been watching too much fox news mm -hmm. yeah. because i'm not saying something agrees with them they assume i'm on the other side and just attack and but they and they will not most people anyway criticize i mean some of the stuff that donald trump says and does that people will defend is just i i can't even fathom it like I could grasp if somebody were to say to me, look, he's the lesser of two evils. I simply cannot vote for the policies of Biden. That's why I vote for Trump. I wouldn't agree, but I could understand. But the degree of devotion, it's more with Trump because it's sort of a figure. But even on the left, you have the tribalism where they just def defend their side. Is Am I wrong that that's worse today than it was in the period you're describing in the, the, the 30s? I think it's undeniably worse. And let me give you a good example of this. FDR won a massive landslide, the biggest landslide in American history, or at least modern American history, 1936 election. He had like three-fourths, more than three-fourths of both houses. Just, you know, a massive majority. And a lot of people thought, oh, man, this FDR is, you know, he's going to do whatever he wants now. And he's going to do a third New Deal. And he wanted to. And guess what happened? He tries to bring in court packing, for example, and other measures. He, get, he gets opposition, including a lot of anti-New Dealers, a lot, I mean, pro-New Dealers. He gets a lot of Democrats opposing him. He had to. The Republicans couldn't have stopped him. And so FDR's term, uh, in congressional, the congressional period after that election in 36 to 38, he's getting tremendous resistance from a Democratic Congress. And a lot of pro-New Dealers are speaking out, including a guy that was his main guy in the press, a guy named Stearns, who owned, owned a string of newspapers and was a loyal administration guy, a confidant of FDR. Even he is speaking out against some of these violations by his administration. So that's a big deal. I just can't imagine that happening now to the same Man, extent. It. It's very regrettable. And um, I don't know what to do about it, but you've got red and blue teams in a very reflexive, simplistic sense. It's like this guy pulled the fire alarm and there are people defending him. You know, this yeah. whole thing. With the, yeah, it's, it's not like, oh, as bad on, as this. You know, yeah. Yeah, there's no defending it. <laughs> this guy was a school principal. He, presumably he would have known about fire alarms. I'm you know? sure he did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably punished a few kids about it. <laughs> yeah. uh, a good friend of mine, a radio host uh, here in Connecticut, Todd Feinberg, he refers to the tribalism as Yankee suck syndrome. 
that if you know if you're a Red Sox fan, the Yankees suck, and and that's it. And if you're yeah. a Yankees fan, the Red Sox suck, and, and that's it. Well, did I? Is there anything that we didn't get to that you think we need to talk about, or you need to say about the Roosevelt administration, or or your book in general? Um, you know, I don't know if there's anything else I'd have to say about Roosevelt, but I would say I would underline that I think in terms of civil liberties, he is. He is the worst president ever, I think, in terms of civil liberties. Now, maybe Donald Trump would have been, but Donald Trump's kind of a, a bull in a china shop. And that's good, right? Because he Roosevelt's much more uh, dangerous. Roosevelt is initiating attacks on civil liberties. Woodrow Wilson, for all his advices, his problem often was deferring to subordinates. Need to even say to some of these subordinates, uh, do you really need to throw this guy in jail? And they say, yeah, we do. And he said, all right. You know, Roosevelt pressing them constantly. So um, I guess that is one point I'd make. And again, I would underline what I said before, that we need to study this period to learn lessons about how to defend civil liberties, how to come across the political spectrum. We see several wonderful examples of that happening. People like Thurgood Marshall, future Supreme Court Justice, he's in the American Civil Liberties Union. For example, he is against Japanese internment, but he's also against sedition trials. That's come back now of right wingers. And let me say that that's one thing I would say. We have a revival of sedition trials against right wingers and trials for domestic terrorism against left-wingers, as in Atlanta. Atlanta has charges, trial going on now against uh, environmentalist protesters under domestic terrorism charges. Very similar to sedition laws. So I think we want to be very leery about these open-ended charges like RICO or sedition or domestic terrorism. If someone's guilty of vandalism or assault, prosecute them for that. I don't like these open-ended laws. And I think I would wish, hope we would see more pushback. I'm not seeing it though. We're bringing back this stuff. And the right is just going to do it now. And they are doing it at the local level. In Georgia, they're they're pushing uh, these domestic terrorism prosecutions in other states. So we're going to see a feeding frenzy on both extremes, like we saw in the 40s. I'm going to get you this time. You got me last time. Vengeance. I'm going to get vengeance on you. I'm going to use the same thing. And nobody in the middle is saying, wait a minute, let's let's value civil liberties for everybody. Yeah, well, we need to. Okay, well, where can people find you and when can they get your book? Well, they can get it now. Um, I guess it's officially out on the 11th, but I'm looking right here at a review copy. So they're 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 going to be out, you know, maybe even before that. But they can order them at the uh, uh, just go to Amazon, and the book is called "The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights." Or you can go to the Independent Institute and order it there. And I think they have some little benefits you can get. I think they're going to try to work it out where I can autograph them. Uh, we're working on that. Um, but, um, yeah, that's the best place to go. And it's a pretty reasonable price for a book these days. Great. And where can they find you? Uh, well, you can go to the independent Institute website. You can go to the history department of the university of Alabama. 
um, and, and find me there as well. If you want to email me, it's dbeto at ua.edu. Professor Beto, thank you very much for joining us and for enlightening us about this significant period of history. For now, this is the Rational Egoist signing out. I'm Michael Leibowitz. Remember, let me know what you think. Till next time.